Thank you, Jim. Good morning. It's good to be back with you uh, again, being here last Sunday. Again, many of you were here. Some of you were, uh, were not. Always a privilege to uh, be here with you and uh, uh, to be among you sharing God's word. If you have your Bibles, make your way to the book of Jude. Jude chapter 1. There is only one chapter. That's the one we'll look at. Um, Jude chapter 1, the second last book in the Bible. We're just going to kind of continue with where we were last week, and uh, for everyone's benefit, we'll kind of review a little bit of what some of what we covered last week and uh, carry on forward. Um, we were asking sort of the question as we began, and we look at things going on in our culture and uh, uh, the different uh, news items that is often uh, making its way forward uh, with issues of politics and issues of economics and issues of international relations and uh, uh, various things that uh, are in the forefront of our culture. And, and what is it that we are to do? What do we do when we see if I can say it this way, culture eroding? What do we do when we see uh, things that are wrong being called right? Uh, things that are uh, good and pleasing to the Lord being uh, limited or maybe uh, legislated against? Uh, what are we to do? Um, it's easy to come up with opinions. I have lots. I'm sure you do too. And we could all sit here and say, oh, we should do this and we should do that. But I think that's the hope of uh, turning to the Lord and turning to his word. And there's a timelessness about it. While it's written in a specific context for specific people, uh, there's a timelessness that applies, if you will, in all contexts. It's interesting, and I talked just briefly about this last week, that there's kind of a development in the New Testament. We obviously begin with the Gospels and the life of Jesus, and we see Jesus' life, his ministry, his teaching, his parables, his uh, confrontation with the Pharisees, uh, ultimately to his death, uh, three days later his resurrection, and ultimately his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Uh, we have the book of Acts, which is really our only historical book in the New Testament, and basically picking up the story with Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father, uh, Acts quickly transitions to the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, on, on Pentecost, and, and then really the development and the growth of the church, the birth of the church, the development of the church, the growth of the church, uh, first primarily through Peter is the focus in the book of Acts, and then mostly then through uh, the life of the Apostle Paul. And then the rest of the New Testament is really full of letters, letters by uh, Paul, and then letters by what we usually call everybody else. And uh, thir 13 letters by Paul, and we uh, call those the Pauline epistles. A and what we have through all these letters, these letters that are primarily being written to churches, on occasion they're written to individuals, but um, we have the development and the growth and the building up and the fortifying of the church. But by the time we get to the last letters, we have our first big problems in the church. And so the last letters of the New Testament are already wrestling with problems from within, and Jude would find its place within uh, that, uh, that context, that uh, Jude is concerned about what is within. And so just briefly to review uh, what we did last week, uh, let's look at the book of Jude beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> Jude, and you'll remember, uh, I should just point this out briefly, that Jude is the uh, younger brother, or maybe I should say stepbrother of Jesus. You remember that, of course, uh, Jesus has this unique birth uh, from Mary. Mary is a virgin when he is uh, born, a and then uh, Mary and Joseph marry, and they have several other kids, James being the oldest, 
uh, our understanding. He's the writer of the book of James in our New Testament. And this is Jude, an, another brother. And in multiple passages, we are reminded that G- Jesus' brothers did not believe in Jesus. They didn't believe that he was the Son of God. And I sympathize with that. I said, I have an older brother, and I would struggle if he sort of made the argument that he was the son of God and, and that I, you know, and that, that would be hard. But none of his brothers were followers until the death and resurrection of Jesus. And upon resurrection, Paul even goes out to point out in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus had a special encounter with James as James came to be a believer in Christ, a follower uh, in his older brother who was the son of God uh, and and ultimately becomes the church uh, pastor in Jerusalem uh, where Christianity was sort of initially uh, started at at the very center of it. Uh, Jude will come along as well and uh, will serve the Lord as a believer in, in Jesus and we pick up his letter that he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. There's the James I was referring to. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. A traditional New Testament style greeting. Uh, he, he, he begins by uh, uh, identifying his audience to those who have been called, uh, who are loved in the Father and kept for uh, Jesus Christ. And there's lots of uh, rich teaching in, even in that. Uh, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. And so this is the beginning of his letter. And this is where it gets kind of interesting. Dear friends, uh, Jude would write, uh, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, that that was going to be why I picked up the the stylist and the parchment. I I was going to talk about the salvation that we share. I was was really excited about that. But we have the Holy Spirit redirecting Jude. And so here's what we have. I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share. I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. Okay, and so just to stop there, Jude is writing. He has this plan to write. He wants to write this letter of possibly of encouragement and the joy of salvation in Christ. But he feels compelled. The Spirit is compelling him. And we kind of get this. uh, We can see it in one of Paul's missionary journeys where he really wants to get to to ultimately he's trying to get to Ephesus. Uh, He's in uh, traveling around in what we would call today uh, northern Turkey, and, and he wants to get to Ephesus, and then he has the dream, and the dream is of this Macedonian believer saying, come up here, come here, and then Paul changes course because he's compelled, realizes this is of the Lord, he's compelled, and then he makes his way ultimately to Philippi and ends up planting a church in Philippi and then down uh, through uh, uh, Macedonian Greece as it was in those days and even as it is today. And, and so we see see that, that sometimes the Spirit compels someone to make changes. Paul had a plan to go to Ephesus. He'd eventually end up in Ephesus, and he'd spend considerable time in Ephesus. He'd plant a church there and so on, but not then. He, he was compelled to go north, and here Jude is compelled to change the topic of the letter that he was going to write. It was going to be about how great our salvation was, the salvation that we share, but now it's contend for the faith, fight for the faith. Uh, defend the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's people. Why, Jude? Why do we need to fight for it? Why do we need to 
preserve it? Why do we need to protect it? Why do we need to uh, embrace it? What, what, what's the issue? For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ uh, our only sovereign and Lord. And the letter goes on. That is, there is a problem within, within the church, that the church needs to continue to fight for the faith that was entrusted once to all, or that all people have received, the common faith. In other words, we're not to fight for our peculiarities, which is in church history, often what has happened. Uh, Churches will take on, we have this view, and we talked about issues of baptism and methodology and issues of how we take the Lord's Supper and what the appropriate uh, ways and means are of doing that and those have become conflicts and and fights within the history of the church but but judas like no no remember what we're fighting for it's the it's what we all share together it's it's the center it's the core if we take time to study the rest of the book of jude he's showing more about what we read sort of in verse in verse four there about ungodly people and 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 people who are already condemned and who are perverting god's grace we're we're seeing that 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 there's bad teaching making its way into the church is really what what jude is getting at jump down briefly we did this last week but we'll do it once more verse 14 Jude chapter 1, verse 14, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. That is these people that Jude has been uh, writing about. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict them all of their ungodly acts that they have committed in their ungodliness. And of all the defiant words, ungodly uh, sinners have spoken against him. And he goes on that there is a judgment coming, Jude's point is, and it's going to deal with the ungodliness. And so when there's a judgment coming that's going to deal with the ungodliness, the command is then contend for the faith, protect and preserve the faith. And so we ask the question, so what's at the center of the Christian faith? What is it that we're contending for? What, what, what is it that we preserve? And in one sense, we could simply say, well, everything that Jesus says, and that would be a really good answer, and, and everything the Lord commands, and everything God's Word contains, all those things would be good answers. Uh, but, but, but how do we, what is at the center there that, that Jude is, is calling to contend for? And it's interesting that if you look through the history of the church, you see that if the church is going to go wayward, if it's going to move away from where it ought to be, it generally begins with a, I want to say misunderstanding. I'm not sure that's the right word. Maybe a limited understanding, maybe emphasizing minor rather than major, but it, essentially it all evolves around the cross. Why did Jesus die? You see, because if Jesus died, for example, if Jesus died to defeat Satan, then that doesn't make me sound nearly as bad, right? I mean, he didn't die to save my sins. He died because he was one-on-one against Satan and he wanted to defeat Satan. He dies and then three days later conquers Satan in resurrected victory. Uh, and, And so what happens is there is a losing of the purpose of the cross. And so that's really what sort of sparked us when Judas saying contend for the faith. There's something about the cross that is very distinct in, in the very central core of Christianity. And, and, and that's really what we began <clears throat> to explore. Uh, briefly, and I'm just going to just kind of highlight these things so that we can uh, continue to move forward. 
Um, we, we began with, well, where does this issue of the cross and so on begin? And I went all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 to a promise that God says to Abraham, and if you remember, he puts him in this beautiful garden, and, and it says this, Genesis 2.15, the Lord took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, and there were lots of trees in the garden to eat from, uh, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Genesis 2 verse 17 is the introduction of death. There is a penalty for disobedience. Adam, it's all for you. Have at it. Take care of the garden. Enjoy it. Lots of fruit. Lots of trees. Eat the fruit. Lots. Everything's beautiful there. Enjoy it. One tree I don't want you to eat from it. And what's the consequence? The consequence, the wages of sin, if you will, is introduced as death. And then what do we immediately see in Genesis 3? Well, Genesis 3 records the narrative where Eve and then Adam eat from the fruit. And we have the curse of death, the introduction of death. And it isn't until we understand God's standards that there is a right and a wrong. And for Adam, essentially everything was right, but one thing, right? That's sort of how it's introduced. Everything you can go have uh, and enjoy the garden and all that's in it, presumably play with the animals and all that. He's naming them and, and, and so on. All of that is good. There's just one thing you can't do, which is, of course, the thing that both uh, he and Eve will ultimately do, and that will be to eat from the fruit, Genesis 3, what is the temptation that, that, that this serpent who encounters Eve gives? And, and notice what's going to be at stake here. It's going to be the same thing from Genesis 2.15. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Well, he didn't say you must not touch it, but let's leave that for now. It's fine. You will die. He's got, she's got the punishment right, right? That is, if you eat from the fruit, you will die. And what does the serpent say? He says, you'll not certainly die. I mean, that's a little harsh, right? It's a, I mean, you know, that die? Really? Is that, is that really what God wants is, is, is for you to, to never eat from it? I mean, you're not going to die, Right? Which is, by the way, the same argument for every perversion that our culture practices today, right? There's not really a punishment for it. Someone can identify as this or pretend to be that, or someone can define love this way, and, and, and someone can do that because there's not any punishment. I mean, it's not like you're going to die, which is going to help us to get to the center of the gospel. Because by Genesis chapter 5, Adam does die. Now, there's something that happens first. There's kind of a spiritual death. and There's a separation. There is some life in there, and then there is ultimately death. I mean, Adam does die. Eve does die. Their one son kills the other son. Eventually, all the sons and the daughters and so on die. And then ever since then, we've all been dying. That, I mean, it's, it's really true that, that this introduces death. That is, there is a penalty. There is a standard. There is a penalty. And, and, and so God had the rule, don't eat from this tree. When you break the rule, you, you die. 
But God doesn't leave it there. And this is the beauty of what we see um, after the serpent tempts Eve. And ultimately, Eve and both Adam disobey God and, 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 uh, and, and uh, uh, have the fruit. And that's that once they disobey, once they're sinners, then there's this cursing. God curses first the serpent. You remember in Genesis 3, then God will curse uh, the woman, and then ultimately God will curse the man. And there's going to be in that curse, the first curse to the serpent, there's going to be that promise that one day the seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman is going to, you're going to strike his heel and, and he will crush your head or, or, or strike your head. Uh, and there's this promise that one day there's an offspring from the woman that's going to ultimately deal with the serpent. And, and, and so what we see is, we see there is something very real about the wrath of God. That it's real and the consequence is death. That, that is the consequence. And so we briefly looked, and I want to kind of remind you of these key passages just to help you sort of frame this, this thinking, this discussion. Deuteronomy 32, uh, 35. This is the famous passage that Jonathan Edwards used <clears throat> when he preached the sermon uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, uh, Deuteronomy, uh, God is speaking through Moses and he says, it is mine to avenge and I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip and the day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. That is, God is not shy about saying there is a price to pay for sin. Now, again, we're trying to figure out what Jude was saying when he said contend for the faith. What we're seeing is we've seen the introduction of sin and, and death ultimately, and that there's a price to pay the wrath of God. John 3:36. Jesus says, whoever believes the son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. The wrath of God is what well, the wrath of God is what gets taken care of when someone believes in Christ. That's what Jesus was saying. It deals with not a defeat of Satan. It deals with the wrath of God. Romans 1, 18 and 19, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what they may uh, w- since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them obviously Paul's argument at the beginning of the book of Romans uh, about the sinfulness of humanity the sinfulness of mankind Paul writing in Ephesians chapter 5 for uh, of this you can be sure no immoral impure or greedy person such a person is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ uh, and of God let no one deceive you with empty words because of such things God's wrath will come on those who are disobedient therefore do not be partners with them the wages of sin is the wrath of God, which is death. That's ultimately what it is. The wages of sin is the wrath of God, which is death. That is, there is a price to pay for sin. That's what God said to Adam in the garden. Genesis 2.15, you can do whatever you want. Enjoy the fruit, enjoy the garden, eat from it. One tree, don't eat from it. And they ate from it because he says, if you eat from it, you will die. And they did. There is a standard, as a matter of fact, There are consequences, if I can say it this way, to love. God is love. And what does that mean? Well, that means there's a right and a wrong. 
that, that, that means there is a right way to behave before God and a wrong way, and the wrong way has consequences, and what we're seeing here is the wrong way leads to death. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give you relief, uh, uh, you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day that Uh, on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who believe. This includes you because you believed in my testimony. That is, what is coming is the wrath of God. That's the last thing to come, is the full pouring out of the wrath of God. That's what Paul is saying. There is a consequence to what goes on in his culture the Roman Empire and all the perversions it introduces into the culture, or our culture today, or another culture a hundred years ago, or if the Lord uh, tarries another culture a hundred years from now. There is a consequence to pay. So we looked at this all to try and understand this idea of God's wrath and what is being poured out. We then went in looking at Genesis to see that not only does God curse, First the serpent, then the woman, and then the man. But then he, well, he does something really interesting. He clothes them. They had felt the, the weight of their sin, exposed their nakedness, and so they had tried to take care of it themselves with fig leaves, however that might have worked. Um, and, and God then has animal skin for them, which would probably require an animal. I'm just going out on a limb there a little bit, but I'm assuming God got the animal skin from the animal, which means that Adam and Eve witnessed the first death in the garden of an animal. Can I say it this way? On their behalf, right? I mean, God was clothing them with the animal skin. The animal had to pay the price. The animal was a substitute, Right? A substitute for them so that they could be clothed and cover up their, their nakedness. And, and so we begin to see the concept or the idea of a substitute being possible to take the place. A substitute for what? Well, for death. Right? Someone's got to die. And so in this case, the animal died or the animals, whatever it might have been, to then clothe them in some kind of inappropriate way at the end of Genesis uh, uh, chapter 3 we see that and so we, we, we end up sort of Genesis 3 Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden expelled from the presence of God uh, but they have been given a promise there's a seed that's coming an offspring of the woman something's coming I- I in the future and they've also seen the first animal sacrifice uh, a death to deal with the effects of sin and, and so this is part of what becomes the center or the core of Christianity that when Jude is saying contend for the faith it's this understanding that the wrath of God comes down on sin. So if Christianity has anything to offer, I guess that's going to be the real issue, right? The real issue doesn't end up to be politics or economics or international relations or all the other things, all of which can be very important. But in the end, the, the issue is all sin is dealt with, ultimately with the wrath of God leading to death. 
And I, I, I don't know about you. Maybe you've encountered a sinner along the way somewhere. Maybe, maybe you know one. You, 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 maybe you see them on the news or, or think one might be in government or something. I, I, I don't know. But, but whatever you might think, the result is the same for all of them, right? That's the thing. We're all sitting here and we're all sinners, right? Not just them, not just those we don't like. It, it's all of us. All of us. And yet this is the beauty or this is the center of the cross, of the gospel message. And so we began to see that Jesus is going to do something very interesting to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. We look briefly at the end at Genesis 22. I'll just quickly remind you of the story. In Genesis 22, Abraham, who's had this long-awaited son, he he and uh, Sarah were promised a son. They had to wait some 25 years from the beginning of the promise till the time they finally had it. They were too old to have children, yet God blessed them with a child and this promised son. Uh, Abraham is then asked in Genesis 22, I want you to take your son. I want you to go over to Mount Moriah. I'll show you where that is, and I want you to well, I want you to create a burnt offering. I want you to sacrifice your son. And it's interesting, we pointed out briefly, a burnt offering. Uh, there's a whole passage on burnt offerings beginning in the book of Leviticus. And a burnt offering, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4, and I'm quoting here, you are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it'll be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. That is, a burnt offering is a sacrifice that takes your place, okay? You have sin, you must die, but according to the appropriate laws of God, you can have a burnt offering that takes your place. What's a burnt offering? It's an offering of atonement. Word for word, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4. And so Abraham is asked to take Isaac and go go have a burnt offering before the Lord. Well, what's a burnt offering? It's an offering of atonement. Abraham, you have sin. Someone needs to die. How about um, Isaac? That'd be perfect. Let's take Isaac and go. And so we have this incredible story of Abraham being willing to take his son, not like Jonah, who would have then, you know, gone south rather than north or whatever and gone the wrong direction. Abraham obeys and Abraham listens and he takes his son. The Bible talks about, you know, Abraham loads up the wood on Isaac's back and you have Isaac then, you know, carrying the wood and walking up the hill, the hill of Mount Moriah, where he's going to sacrifice the son. And, and so we, we think of the imagery of Abraham carrying the wood and, and, and up the hill. And we're later going to find out, of course, Mount Moriah, when Solomon begins to build the temple. Where does he build the temple in Jerusalem? Well, uh, se- uh, Second Chronicles, First Chronicles, uh, Second Chronicles, there we go. Second Chronicles, chapter three, verse one, Solomon begins to build the temple and he builds it on Mount Moriah the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, which is where Abraham was hundreds of years earlier. And as they're walking up the hill back to Genesis 20, Isaac says, you know, Dad, you, you got the wood, I'm carrying that, and you got the fire, and you got the, you know, everything else, but uh, where's the sacrifice? And of course, uh, Abraham says, well, God will provide a lamb. And it's very, very specific. God will provide a lamb, son. And, and, and so then later Isaac is tied up, and he's like, man, when's that lamb coming, right? I mean, it's, it kind of looks like I'm the lamb. And of course, Abraham draws the knife and, and, and God intervenes and says, now I know that, that you have faith. Now I know that you trust me. And then they see a ram caught in the thicket. Remember that? Abraham says God's going to provide a lamb. But 
they find a ram in the thicket and they go take him and they put him on the altar and they sacrifice the ram. So if you will, Isaac was going to be sacrificed to take Abraham's sin. But then there's a substitute that's brought in. That is a ram is going to be sacrificed to take Isaac's place to cover, if you will, Isaac's sin. And so now we have a ram sacrifice. And then we have this fascinating passage, Genesis 22, 14. So Abraham called the place the Lord, the Lord will provide. No, 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 no. He should have called it the Lord did provide, right? They needed a lamb. They got a ram. Good enough. Let's go. Uh, that's not what he said. The Lord will provide. And to this day, uh, and, and, and to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Well, the Lord, it will be provided. See, Abraham asked for a lamb. God provided a ram. And then, labor, uh, then Abraham said, in this place, I'm going to call this place one day the Lord will provide. Well, why don't you call it the Lord did provide? Didn't you read the story? Do you not remember Isaac and the ram? And everything? Like, How did you forget so soon? No, no, it's prophetic. One day on Mount Moriah, which is going to be where Jerusalem is built, there will be a lamb provided by God. That's what Abraham's saying. And it's fascinating because it's all in the future. It makes no sense. Abraham should talk about what the Lord just did, but he's not. He's talking about what the Lord will one day do. <clears throat> it's interesting. We see this played out in Jesus' ministry. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. As the time approached for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Depending on your translation, he turned his head to face Jerusalem. He knew where he needed to go. John had already identified him. Remember John? The next day, John 1, 29, the Jesus, uh, John saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, the Lamb knew where it needed to go. The Lamb needed to turn its face towards Mount Moriah because Abraham said, one day, the Lord will provide a Lamb. And so we have all this imagery given to us in the Old Testament of what ultimately is going to get fulfilled in the New Testament. The Lamb of God, which is an atonement, a sacrifice for our sins. That is, sin has a penalty, and that penalty needs to be paid, and the penalty is to God, not Satan. The penalty is to God. The wrath of God is being poured out on the sinfulness of man. The penalty needs to be paid to God. And so God has this great idea. Why don't I pay the penalty to me? I'll send my one and only son. All right, we've got 11 minutes left. We've got the introduction done. (laughs) Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. I want to show you another sacrifice. Just like we saw teeny bit in Genesis 3 when God killed an animal to clothe them with skin. We saw a little bit in Genesis 22 when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac and then ultimately the ram was sacrificed on behalf of Isaac, which was on behalf of Abraham. Uh, Now we look in Exodus chapter 12. The story changes. We've been now in in uh, Egypt for some 400 years. In the course of that time, the, Egy- the Egyptians have enslaved God's people, the Hebrews, the, uh, the people of, uh, uh, of Israel. And then God has raised up Moses to deliver these people out of their slavery and towards the promised land. And now we're at the last night 
in Egypt. That's where we pick up the story where we have the 10th plague, the Passover, the plague of the death of the firstborn, which is where we pick up the story. The Lord said to Moses, chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Okay, so the Israelites are going to get their own calendar that does not coincide with the Egyptian calendar nor anyone else's. And we're going to reorientate your calendar, Moses and Aaron, that this is going to be the beginning. We're going to begin with this, this day, however long they'd been in in, in Egypt, these 400 years, this, this day, this month, we're going to reorientate the calendar. This is where we start. Every year starts with this. That's what he's saying. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, so I'm going to just say it like this, January 10th, okay? It's not really January, but you get it, January is our first month. So if you kind of want to think about it that way, we're now talking about January 10th. So January 1st, the beginning of the new year, January 10th, the the, the 10th day of that first month, um, each man is to take a lamb. Huh. Didn't Abraham prophesy that one day the Lord would provide a lamb? Genesis 22 that each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share it with one of their nearest neighbors, having taken account the number of people uh, that there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat, okay? So we need to have enough lamb for each uh, person, and and if you don't need a full lamb, well, you can share it with others and and make it all work, right? Uh, Verse 5, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Because um, the lamb is going to be killed as a substitute. And so what kind of lamb are you going to need? Well, one without any defects. No, 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 no problems with it. It's going it's to have to be perfect, right? We need a perfect lamb to be the atoning uh, sacrifice. The lamb is going to have to be without defect. It's going to have to be perfect. And and you may take him from among the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they are to eat the lambs. There's all sorts of details then about the eating and the roasting of the lamb the appropriate way and the appropriate bitter herbs and so on and 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 passage is all important but but let's just kind of think about for that moment here we, we have this required for sacrifice a perfect lamb if you know the sacrificial system that the lord will later give to moses of course that's always the case if you want to uh, use a lamb for a sacrifice or a goat for a sacrifice it always has to be the perfect one it always has to be without spots or, or, or wrinkles without uh, without defects now <clears throat> we're going to do some math here and i just i'm going to use fingers i hope that's okay okay so when are you going to get the lamb you're going to get it on the 10th here's my 10th okay Right? Oops, sorry. Uh, So we're going to get the lamb on the 10th, okay? And then verse 6, take care of them until the 14th day of the month. Okay, so here's my 10th. Here's my 11th. Here's my 12th. Here's my 13th, my 14th. It's interesting. It doesn't really explain. I wonder, like, what would it be like if you had a lamb live in your home for five days as you took care of it? I don't mean messy. I mean 
wouldn't you be attached to that perfect little thing? Right? It creates some bondage to them. It, it, it helps you to recognize that that little lamb that you had or one-year-old male lamb, maybe little isn't the right word, uh, uh, or, or goat in this case, would, would you'd endure to it? Or if there's kids in the home, that they would come to love that? So, so again, so the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th. I think I did that backwards. 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th. So, so I remember in the New Testament, Jesus celebrating the Passover, and I, I think that was Thursday night. So when would the Lamb of God have to... So Thursday, that was Thursday they were doing the Passover. So he'd have to Thursday uh, before... Uh, uh, Wednesday, uh, Tuesday, Monday. He'd have to come in on... Oh, he did. He did come to Jerusalem on Sunday on that triumphal entry. When did he come? He came on Sunday. They make a big deal about it on that first day of the week. Who comes into town? Well, it's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. It's interesting that, that later in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 16 specifically, uh, that Moses changes where you're going to celebrate the Passover. The Passover is going to be celebrated every year from this time, even until today. Every year the Passover is celebrated, but it's not always going to be celebrated in your house. Deuteronomy 16, Moses is going to change that. Observe the month of Aviv to celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, because in that month of Aviv, uh, we'd call it January, he brought you out of Egypt by night. Sacrifice uh, as the Passover to the Lord your God, an animal from your flock or herd at the place the Lord will choose as his dwelling, uh, as a dwelling for his name. That's where you're to do it. So in the book of Deuteronomy, we move the Passover celebration from the home to the tabernacle, right? Jesus or, or God is moving within a tent at this point, the place where the name of the Lord dwells. That's going to be a tent. Later, it's going to be the temple that Solomon will build in Jerusalem, and that'll be the place where you'll ultimately celebrate the Passover. You're going to, you're going to celebrate it where the Lord dwells. That's Deuteronomy uh, 16 is going to uh, remind us of that, that that's going to get moved. And so we have this Passover lamb, and we start to see some of these things that, that Jesus is going to be specifically living out and fulfilling these Old Testament details, because really the New Testament is a fulfillment of the Old, right? It actually says that on multiple occasions, which makes it really troubling if we only read our New Testaments. It's like you get a math thing, and you just get the answers. 47. Huh? 47. Well, wh- well what was the question? Well, no, you don't, that's the Old Testament. That's the question. But look at the answer, huh? 47, right? The, the, the meaning of the cross, it's interesting. Much of the meaning that Jesus is fulfilling in going to the cross is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, often even prophecy that we don't recognize. We don't think of Abraham's comment on naming Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide. We don't even think of that as future even though it's clearly future. It, it says the Lord will provide. He, he hasn't yet. I mean, he gave us the ram. Thank the Lord for the ram. But one day he's going to provide a lamb. And John identifies the lamb of God who takes away the sins <coughs> of the world. And of course, Jesus is ultimately identified as the Passover lamb. That Paul makes that clear. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 is talking about uh, the old yeast, the new creation. So get rid of the old yeast, uh, old yeast uh, so that you might be uh, a new unleavened batch as you really are for Christ. 
our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Paul teaching there and just sort of a, a, along the way we can see that clearly the, the, that Christ becomes that Old Testament fulfillment of this lamb, this lamb that they were to, to sacrifice, that they were to, to, uh, to do before well, you remember what it was, was the, the thing was the angel, of the, the angel of death was going to come down and it was going to kill the firstborn in every household, right? And, and so all the Egyptian households and all the Israelite households, all the firstborn are going to go. As a matter of fact, it's even going to go down to the cattle as well and all their firstborn. And, and so the angel of death, but there's a way that you can avoid the angel of death. And that is that you have this atonement that the lamb would take its place. The lamb has to be perfect and, and without defect and so on, as we read. And then you're going to paint the, the blood on the doorpost, which is kind of interesting. You're going to sacrifice it at twilight. It's going to be completely dark. Who's seeing the blood? Like the Egyptians don't get to see it. It happens just before nighttime. It happens at twilight. Who gets to see the blood? The only person that matters. God. The issue is God's wrath. That's what we need deliverance from. That's what the world will one day face, the wrath of God. You see, the centrality of the Christian faith is based on there is wrath coming. Atonement's been made. Penalty's been paid. That's what we celebrate, right? We don't celebrate somehow we're better. We're not better. We're sinful. They're sinful. There's no we in them. We're all sinful, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're, we're all sinful, but we celebrate the centrality of Christianity is the result of sin or the wages of sin is death, but someone stood in our place, the Lamb of God. It had to happen in Genesis 3. It had to happen in Genesis 22. It happened, had to happen in Exodus 12. And it happened throughout the entire Old Testament so that the Jewish people of all people would have this mindset that the results of sin is always death, but it is possible for someone to take the place of another. And that's the centrality. Unless we lose that. Because there's always this tendency, if you don't have to face the wrath of God, then the things of this world aren't that bad. I mean, so someone is this, but they're pretending to be that. So someone says, this is wrong, but I actually think it should be right. I mean, what does it matter? It matters because the wrath of God is still yet to come. Every single person faces it. However, your sin, you need to face it. My sin, I need to face it. We all need to face the wrath of God. However, there is one who is willing to be a substitute, and he's worthy. You see, I could sound really noble up here and say, hey, listen, I'll take your punishment. It doesn't work. I already deserve my own. I can't take yours. I got enough of my own, right? And, and, and so that doesn't work. But one who is without defect, one who is the spotless lamb of God, as a matter of fact, turns out it's, it's the oldest. God's son, Jesus, the, his firstborn, is the one who's going to take the wrath of God for all firstborns. It's a little bit of a play on Adam is the firstborn. That's where we get all our sin from, right? A sin originates with Adam. He's the firstborn, and God's firstborn pays the sin for all of Adam's firstborn, all of us. And so it's a beautiful picture that we have running from the Old Testament to the New Testament of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
Jesus being that, that lamb. I want to end here with uh, one more little look here, and that is ultimately <clears throat> with Jesus just before he goes to the cross. Matthew 26, picking up in verse 36, Then Jesus went with the disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and two, the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began uh, to be sorrowful and troubled. And they said to him, my, he said to them, excuse me, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, farther, he fell on his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. What cup? What cup is the Lamb of God trying to get rid of? What cup? If it at all possible, this is what it says, if at all possible, may this cup be taken from me. This cup. What cup? There are two cups in the Old Testament. One is mentioned in Psalm 116. It's called the cup of salvation. Well, I don't think that's the one Jesus is worried about drinking from. And there's another cup. And it's mentioned throughout the Old Testament. I'm not sure how many times, but many, many different times. As a matter of fact, the cup is described maybe most clearly in the book of Revelation. Revelation 14, 9, and 10. A third uh, angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb. The cup is the cup of God's wrath, the result of sin. Jesus is praying at that last moments in the garden before he's about to be arrested. Is there any way, Lord, that I don't have to drink? The, the issue wasn't death. The issue wasn't the, the, the beatings that he would face or the mistrials and the miscarriage of justice that he's about to go through through the night and so on. Those aren't the issues. Those are bad, but those aren't the real issues. The issues wasn't the beating and the flogging. It wasn't the nails going through the hands and the, the spear piercing the side. It wasn't any of those things. It was the cup. It was the pay the price of sin, the cup of God's wrath. Is there any way this cup and those other things, that, that's, that's fine. But what about this cup? Is there any way that this could pass? Not my will. Yours be done. And he drinks the cup of God's wrath because there is a result to sin. This is what love looks like. Love has boundaries so that we know what unloving looks like. Disobeying the Lord who is love faces the wrath of God. And so at the center of the faith, when Jude says to contend for the faith that was once held for all, it's to recognize in the end, we're all sinful, but there's a worthy substitute who's made atonement, who's, who's, who drank the full cup, right? Took on all of God's wrath. And that is what we share. That's what we believe. And that's what we defend. And when culture goes askew, we don't just talk about the wrath of God, although it is coming, but we talk about the wrath of God and a substitutionary atonement 
which is already drinking the cup. And it reorients everyone to the fact that one day, every knee bows and every tongue recognizes and confesses Jesus as Lord. And either someone has to have drink in the cup on your behalf, or you got to drink it yourself. And that's the beauty of Christianity, the center of our faith, the atoning sacrifice, the substitutionary atonement that Jesus offers on the cross. <clears throat> Father, what a privilege it is for us to be reminded of these truths, <clears throat> to be reminded that you made a way that someone else could pay for our sin, to pay for our debt. And Father, we have to confess that it is good that there is wrath for sin, or otherwise you'd leave us in our sinful state. And we get a glimpse even today of what our sinful state looks like with disunity and destruction and all that goes on around us. We're mindful of the beauty of your son, the Lamb of God, who came to Mount Moriah in Jerusalem <clears throat> at the appropriate time and to be a sacrifice once for all, for all of us, all of us in this room, all of us in this church, all of us in this land, for all people, if we're willing to allow him and accept him and entrust him with our sinfulness to be reclothed in, well, in his righteousness. And so, Father, we bow our heads as grateful people for Jesus and for the cross and for atonement for our sins and pray that that would be what we would contend for, that we would share with others, that we would defend, that we would hold dear. Even this week we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.